Welcome back to Radio Rothbard. This is Stowe Bishop, Communications Director for the Mises Institute, joined, as always, by Ryan McMakin. We've got a special guest today, a friend of the program, Peter St. Ange, a former Mises Institute Research Fellow and currently a fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Um, he also does a lot of great commentary on monetary policy, the Fed, and cryptocurrency. A lot of his articles have appeared on the Mises Wire as well. And so taking his experience uh, in the belly of the beast at you know one of the prominent think tanks in D.C., I thought it was a good opportunity for us to discuss the political fallout from the topic that we discussed on last week's show, the topic that is taking over Mises.org, um, and really I mean, one of the most important topics in the country outside of the potential arrest of Donald Trump. Um, uh, so we are here to talk about the political response to the current banking crisis. Um, and starting off, I saw that today, uh, let it not be said that bipartisanship is dead, um, Rick Scott and Elizabeth Warren, a odd couple uh, in many, many ways, um, have actually unleashed a oversight package for the Federal Reserve questioning the ability of the Fed to do an internal evaluation on the regulatory side of the matters that led into um, the banking crisis. And so it's, it's interesting that within this dynamic that the political shield that the Fed has long enjoyed, this uh, claim to political independence seems to be breaking on both the left and the right. Um, and so, Peter, um, let's start off with what are the conversations? How are you reading through the tea leaves into not only, you know, crazy Austrian economists, how we are viewing this as a uh, kind of repudiation of insane monetary policy the past decade of the underlying concerns we've had with fractional reserve banking? How do you think normies, if you will, are responding to this crisis in perhaps a different way than we saw maybe in 2008? Yeah, I think that normies who are paying attention are with us. Uh, as with 2008, we are the ones who are making sense. We are the ones who have been warning that this sort of thing was coming. We are seeing a repeat of, at least so far, it looks like we're seeing a repeat of 2008. And, you know, our side has come a long way since then. There were a lot of organizations on the right who were sort of caught flat-footed by 2008. There was an enormous amount of pressure put on them, not least by the George W. Bush administration, to play ball and to save the country from falling off the cliff. You all remember the propaganda at the time, the fear-mongering. And a lot of organizations on the right uh, lost you know, their backbone and sort of joined in and, and called for TARP and these other things. And, you know, fool me once, uh, a lot of these people regret what they said back then, and they've got a very different attitude towards this. So I know at Heritage, we've been uh, very strongly opposed to any sort of bailout uh, for the moral hazard that it introduces into the banking system that makes it much more likely to have these kinds of uh, you know, bank panics and bailouts in the future, we would be buying trouble, spending trillions of dollars to make the problem worse in the future. Uh, in terms of normal Americans, what's striking to me anyway is that a lot of people on the left are completely unaware of what's happening. They're obsessed with trans bills or, you know, whatever. Uh, I think the assumption on the left, broadly speaking, is that the government's just going to bail everybody out. Don't even worry about it. 
the economic sophistication is not very strong, so it doesn't necessarily, you know, the penny doesn't necessarily drop that that's going to convert into ongoing inflation. Uh, but they're, <laughs> I think on their side, they're not paying much attention. On our side, on the right-leading side, I think that there is consensus that we are not going to write any more blank checks. Yeah, I. Uh, it seems that when you're talking center left and center right, though, right, there's still a general consensus there, though. It seems it's really still the oddballs that uh, have, uh, well, you know, I shouldn't call them oddballs. The independent thinkers <laughs> are the people who've actually bothered to, to see the problem with just bailing everything out. Because I, I think a lot, and I remember these conversations from 2008. I think we can learn a lot from that time. And I agree, Peter. I think there's definitely progress has been made because in 2008, the constant claim, the refrain was bail everybody out or it's going to be 20 percent uninflation, uh, unemployment. Everything's going to collapse. It's going to be this disaster. So why not just bail everything out? What's what's the problem? And they say, oh, well, there could be inflation. And they'll be like, you know, just don't worry about that. It'll be fine. And of course, at the time, there wasn't any real danger of inflation was the feeling. And they managed us to pull that rabbit out of that hat where they managed to get 10 years going afterward of no high inflation rates. Now, part of the reason for that is that the economy was always pretty weak in that decade. Uh, and in spite of us tell, in spite of being told it was this wonderful expansion and all of that stuff, you didn't see like personal median income return back to 2001 levels even until about 2016, 2017. So it was really remarkable what a weak period that was. That helped keep inflation down. But man, did I, and I worked for the division of housing at the time. So it was all about foreclosures and bank collapses and all of that stuff, right? But it was all just, hey, either you support uh, the, the bailouts or we're all going to lose our jobs and there's no real downside. I think now we're much better positioned, right? Because inflation obviously is not just something you don't have to worry about. And people are maybe starting to wonder, okay, well, if you just keep bailing everything out forever, then uh, what's the end game on that? We'll just keep printing more and more money. And so I think there's actually some questions. So, of course, that doesn't make you an oddball for questioning it. It just makes you someone who's actually paying attention for the last 15 years. And, of course, the left, as you say, they don't really have any sort of theoretical backing or anything for any reason to oppose it. But I do think that even I, – I guess maybe it's, it's more a matter of if you're just an old-timer and you're just used to the usual way of doing things in Washington, then we'll just bail things out and we have no other answers. Uh, but there does seem to be a growing number of people in Washington, I guess among the, the younger crowd who weren't in Washington back in 08 or maybe have uh, maybe they're more post Ron Paul sorts of people who are like, eh. I mean, just just repeating what we did in 2008. I could see maybe that's just not the answer to all of our problems. So, it, yeah, it does seem that there's actual doubt this time, which. Uh, yeah, I don't think you can impress enough upon young people who don't remember 2008. There were no doubts. I mean, we were just going to bail everything out and everything was going to be fine. And don't dissent because uh, that's just stupid. So that seems to be where we are now. There is some progress for sure. And what encourages me on the oddball question. So in D.C., without a doubt, we're still the oddballs, right? Uh, like within Congress, yes, most of them, they kick the can down the road. 
They do whatever uh, is least painful in the moment. Uh, but what's encouraging me is that outside of D.C., the public at large, right, they bought the propaganda in 2008. Now they don't, right? So there was a Reuters poll, 84% opposition to bailouts. That is astounding compared to 2008. So really, at this point, I think it's down to the disconnect between Washington and, you know, the sort of the consensus that the establishment is broken is moving up. It hasn't hit the head of the fish yet. It hasn't hit Congress yet. Uh, but I think it's getting close. I'm very encouraged what's happening this time around. Another detail is that, you know, last time in 2008, we didn't have a real widespread social media. Uh, we had the Internet. Yes, we could you know, spread our, our ideas better than, you know, Rothbard's, uh, you, you know, back in the 70s, you could get the entire libertarian movement in a single living room in New York. OK, we had come a long way since then, not least with Mises.org. Uh, but now we've got social media and lo and behold, we can actually use the thing. We can actually say things out loud. So I think that there's an ability to move the Overton window towards ideas that, you know, we couldn't have even imagined it in 2008. And one thing I think is interesting from a variety of levels here is that, you know, for one, you know, I, I think it's easy for perhaps some of our audience to take for granted how bad the situation looks right now because we are aware of the consequences that have led to this point, right? Some of us may have predicted this early on. You know, there was a lot of alarm bells out there at the end of 2019 and the repo crisis there and the way that, that showed sort of the, the fundamentals in the banking sector kind of showing some warning signs prior to all the covert that COVID liquidity kind of brought to the system. Right. But for a large percentage of the company for the country, I, I was talking with a local community banker earlier this week and, you know, I, I kind of had a, you know, kind of a, a you know, a, a uncertain sort of smile on my face when I asked him, you know, hey, how's everything going in the office? And he's like, well, everything's, fine. you know, everyone's asking me about this now, but, you know, everything's fine with us. Like, we're not Silicon Valley Bank. We don't have exposure to all that woke stuff out there. You know, we don't have all the exposure to, to uh, uh, tech companies, right? You know, we've got a lot of uh, commercial mortgages on our balance sheet. It didn't quite go in that, that detail, right? But there's still, I think, a perception that this is something isolated to quirky left-wing banks, if you will, that that you know, a lot of people are not recognizing the, the the far greater systemic problems out there quite yet, um, and so that's that's something that I still think a lot of the people out there are, are catching up on. And I think even on the political side of things, um, one of the, one of the interesting dynamics I think going forward is that as the scale of this becomes better understood, and I do think there are some within Washington that are, are, are starting to appreciate the scale of this shadow uh, un, you know, underpinning everything, that the leadership in both the Republican side and the House side, both the House and the Senate, is a great deal different than it was in 2010. Um, you know, you, you still have, uh, you, you still have a few holdovers there. I know uh, uh, Mike Crapo um, from Idaho um, he is, he was on the Senate banking committee then still is now, but a lot of the larger ideologues on both the left and the right ideologues are perhaps giving them too much credit. A lot of the, the actual leaders there, I know my old boss, Spencer Backus, um, who did not take an Austrian approach to the, to the banking crisis by any means, but you know, he was the ranking member of the, of, of the Republicans in that time. 
He is no longer there. Jeb Hensterling is no longer there, who is underneath him. Barney Frank is now getting his bank taken over by the government over at Signature, so he's no longer there. You, Maxine Waters is still there. I don't know if she's quite the intellectual force leading anything. Um, but, but so there is a circulation of policymakers at this time that are going to be navigating these waters as they appreciate just how broad this underlying crisis really is. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, your point to the sort of woke narrative and the commercial debt and that, uh, we had a conference about a year ago in Orlando, uh, one of the Mises regional conferences, and we had three speakers up there, and all of us agreed that, you know, they were going to keep hiking until they broke something. And it's, it's really impossible to know what's going to break, right? If we look at the last crisis, the sort of poster child for what broke the world was um, what was it? Collateralized debt securities and uh, mortgage-backed uh, securities, right? So these were two things. You guys will remember in the beginning of the crisis, we had all of these explainers in the Wall Street Journal, which is a fairly high-level publication for finance. We had all these explainers like, what the heck are these things? Nobody would ever heard of them. There's a movie, uh, The Big Short, where he's going around trying to get Wall Street to price these things. And they're all just spitballing. They're like, I don't know, a dime, a quarter, I don't know, whatever. Just take his money. In other words, these were unknown, obscure. Nobody was watching them. Most Wall Streeters are not that bright. They probably did not even know what these things were and what the risks were in them. So the question is, you know, we've got what the, the, the UK pensions almost broke a couple months ago. We've got the Japanese yen moving by 30% in a matter of months, which is, that hasn't happened in some time. Uh, you know, at the moment, we've got the woke bros uh, screwing up one bank. Uh, you know, there's a lot of other things on the horizon. Uh, you mentioned commercial debt, for example, and a lot of banks are worried about that. Uh, there's a lot of movement in mortgage-backed securities, which are now tremendous margins, about an $8 trillion market. There are a lot of things to break. And if we look at what happened last time, it's not even the things you're watching that could break. Uh, we saw this right before COVID, right? In late 2019, when they had the, um, the repo crisis there, and nobody was watching that. It came out of the blue. Again, they rolled out the explainers. So I think there's a good chance we're going to have some kind of explainer crisis here where something that nobody is watching pops out. Because the fundamental problem is they ramped up interest rates at the fastest pace since the 1970s, and our debt is out of control. We have $70 trillion of debt in the United States. That is far larger than the problem that we had in the 1970s. Yeah, and I think that uh, the banks, they there's no plan B, right? They, got, <laughs> there's, they can't fall back on some secret assets they have somewhere. There's, there's, no way, there's nothing they can sell to pay off this debt. And so it's just a matter of I need I need to get my hand on some cash somehow. And all this and the way it's being framed, I think it's really there is a point of danger here. And we've talked internally at the Mises Institute. We've talked about this a lot. Right. If we come away from this crisis and the bad guys win, that means when the crisis is over, people will just be convinced that capitalism caused the problem. People will be just convinced that the, the bad thing the Fed did was raise interest rates. The it wasn't that the Fed created an economy that was all screwed up and based on malinvestment and negative real interest rates and all of that stuff, which is what created the boom and then the ultimate bust. Instead, no, 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 the Fed should have just kept interest rates low forever. And, oh, well, I don't know if there's inflation. I, I don't know. Price controls, that'll fix the problem. 
So, yeah, we are at a position where it's really important to explain what the real source of the problem is, right? And the source of the problem was that all of these banks, Daniel Lakai had a good article on this, right? is all the banks did exactly what they were supposed to do. They went all in to the low interest rate economy. They, they, they're like, they were basing their entire business model on 1% on this, and then we'll just refinance everything at half a percent next year. And it's just low interest rates forever. Everything's a zombie company. Everything just relies on cheap debt in the future. They did that. That's what they were supposed to do. That's the only way to make money in this economy that the Fed created. And then all you have to do is raise interest rates to 4%. And suddenly everything's messed up and you can't pay. You can't cover your cash flow. You're paying out more than you're bringing in. It's a total disaster. And that's what the Fed created. And that's what the Fed needs to be blamed for, not for now allowing interest rates to go up slightly. But I think, in, I don't know what the the narrative is going to be in Washington. Is, is I mean, are they just going to be told, oh, you, you know, the Fed shouldn't have raised interest rates. Now oversight is going to be not letting the Fed raise interest rates much. I have no idea what it is that people like Elizabeth Warren have planned. Yeah, well, Warren's pushing now that it's the regulations that did it. You know, every time anything goes wrong, they have like a team of interns who they, you know, they go through everything Donald Trump ever said in his entire life. And they try to, you know, they do six degrees of Donald Trump to try to link that. Um, but I think you're right that that narrative that all of these banks that are crashing, they did exactly what they were told to do. In fact, in many cases, commanded to do. Uh, it, you know, they bought uh, government bonds, the risk-free asset, so-called. <laughs> um, you know, this is exactly the gold standard that banking regulators want you to do. All of the uh, prudential monitors told them to do this. Uh, you know, if you look at Silicon Valley Bank, it, you know, one of the sort of emerging narratives is that this was just the irresponsible tech bros. This has nothing to do with the system. This is just a couple of bad apples. Well, the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank was literally a San Francisco Fed official. The CEO. They knew, ex <laughs> they knew exactly what was happening because they were what was happening. Like the idea that, you know, this is just a couple of rogue banks or, you know, uh, Larry Summers had a thing where, oh, they made, they made the first mistake in banking. They maturity mismatched. What are you talking about? That is fiat banking. They all did exactly what they were told to do or commanded to do. Well, and, and the regulatory side of it, like th that, that is the, the narrative that we can already predict. I mean, they're already trying to put it out there. Um, you know, it's it's oh well, you know, Trump. You know, you know, the, the, there was a, there was a tweak to the Dodd Frank regulations promoted by Barney Frank that 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 you know helped, you know, liberalize, you know, the, the size bank that Silicon Valley Bank is and et cetera. The problem is, and, and I know I know one of the big warning signs out there right now is is the the, the broader uh, commercial mortgage market. And there is this the, the dynamic that I think the one of the most terrifying things about it, one of them is central bank digital currencies, um, which can which kind of feed into this, but it's the further consolidation of the banking industry that I, I think we're, we're going to, we're, we're getting set up for right now with the Elizabeth Warren narrative. Because if you look back, I mean, it, it's, it's incredible the degree to which, you know, the, the, the size of com commercial real estate mortgages are now being hold, held by small and regional banks. You know, part of that is that the, the, the degree of small business lending period is still you know, greatly dependent upon these smaller regional banks. The big banks, you know, typically do not have the same sort of Main Street services as everything else. And so we're setting, you know, so, so this entire narrative where they're going to continue to, they're going to they're celebrate larger banks buying up, you know, the, the assets of these, 
other smaller institutions selling, hey, if only we had yet more regulation, this stuff would have never happened. And, and there's, there might be a narrative here. There might be an outcome here where the biggest two big to fail banks really do, you know, really are the safest places to park your money because of the, high, you know, the, the higher you know, necessary for reserve requirements and things like that. I mean, there's going to be on a superficial level a, in, in a, an element here that is going to justify this broader regulatory narrative. We'll, 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 it's going to end up saying when, when international banks fail, I think particular, that's, that's going to be, you know, that, that's, that aspect to it is going to be a little bit more interesting. And, and again, the global, uh, the global aspect of these policies that have undermined American banks is, is something I think our audience appreciates more than most. But, but there is going to be a very superficial way of looking at this dynamic that just says, hey, these, these, the, the underperforming banks, the failing banks, they're the ones that just don't have the same sort of re regulation that we put in there. And so we need to either treat all banks the same way we treat significantly institu important financial institutions. You know, all banks are too big to fail, which is now effectively the, the policy of the financial regime. And that will inevitably lead to, because of compliance costs, you know, the, the, the trend that we've already seen with, with smaller banks being bought up by regional banks being you know, merged into larger banks, it's going to further lead to this consolidation, which then opens the door to the greater agenda of central bank digital currencies, of you know, the further weaponization of the dollar in the financial system. And, and so do, do, you, do you think, Peter, are some, you know, is, is, is the heritage class, is the conservative intellectual class within the policymaking apparatus given the greater sensitivity to great reset style, globalist style, you know, whatever sort of populist label you want to place upon it, is there an appreciation perhaps less for the economic theoretical problems and, and the, you know, it's some of those aspects to at the very least the, the authoritarian consequences of weaponizing the financial system. Massively. Uh, we are very focused on it. I spend most of my time on that topic, uh, CBDCs, financial concentration. You know, we're likely to, uh, we're already seeing it, but this giant sucking sound of capital out of, you know, flyover country and towards New York. When it gets to New York, you know, when it gets to these giant banks, a lot of it just goes overseas uh, or, you know, it just goes to the Wall Street casino. It's, it's uh, bidding against each other on these exotic financial products like collateralized debt securities. Uh, it is no longer funding, you know, a small factory in Wisconsin or commercial real estate, a strip mall. It's been sucked out of that market. And of course that, as you know, it eases the path to moving towards a CBDC where commercial banks become sort of paid assistants. Uh, you know, they're, they're cutting on the profits, but fundamentally the entire financial system is being run out of uh, the government, whether that's, you know, the, the actual treasury or some agency of the government or whether it's some sort of sneaky Fed style. We're not exactly government. We're not exactly private. Uh, so however they structure it, that fundamentally the government is calling the shots. And at the end of that process, it gives you what they had in the Soviet Union called Gostplan, where the government allocated all capital uh, we're not that far from that today. You know, we've got these ESG mandates. We've got various government programs that are either subsidizing or promoting movement of capital into preferred industries. Uh, I imagine that, you know, the capital raising opportunities open to you for doing some green wind shore, uh, offshore wind project are probably not the same if you'd like to start up a firearms manufacturer 
they're already moving towards that. And, you know, CBDCs themselves are deeply, deeply unpopular across the spectrum. When they actually dare to poll them, they rank something like 10 or 20 percent. Regular Americans don't want this garbage, but the people who control the levers of power desperately want CBDCs because it concentrates control in their hands. Well, it'll be really interesting to see at the end of this crisis how many more things are obviously just adjuncts of the regime. Because I remember back in 2007, uh, I had to work with uh, the local representatives of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, right? And there was talk about reining in those those uh, companies uh, because, you know, they were just out of control in terms of essentially going, doing high, high risk stuff because they knew they were essentially backstopped by the federal government. But that had never been obviously played out yet in terms of public policy. So, Gaslighting is a big term now. We didn't use it back then, but that was the, that was what you were getting from Fannie and Freddie was constant gaslighting. Hey, we're a private company with private stockholders. You can't regulate us. What are you anti-capitalism? You want to tell Fannie and Freddie what what to do? And then, of course, the truth became obvious later. They were just government uh, companies, essentially, there to do government's bidding. And then they're, now they're just explicitly owned by the government, although, you know, we still talk, we still use euphemisms like, uh, you know, they're in receivership and all that sort of thing, right? But they're, they're, they're a trust and whatever. The fact is that they're just an arm of the U.S. government. And so uh, it's becoming less and less plausible that anyone could talk about Oh, Jamie Dimon over at uh, J.P. Morgan, right? He's a real independent thinker. He doesn't, uh, you know, he he doesn't care what the regime thinks. He's going to go his own way. He's going to look out just for the private sector. He's going to look out what's good for the industry. Nobody believes that. All of these people are are in league with each other, and they are all getting money from the regime. And you can just look at the whole home ownership business now. Now that, of course, Fannie and Freddie are government industries, we could just say that. And with FHA, you look at that, it looks like over 90% of all home loans are originated essentially using federal money or some sort of federal insurance or backstop there. I mean, there's there's so little capitalism going on here. All of these big uh, enterprises, they're part of the feds. And so I I just wonder now, what will be the next domino to fall? Will will we, we then just then talk about how the big banks are... You know, they're uh, they're not really government, but they're not really private, right? Just like you were saying, Peter, right? And so what are we going to add to that list of things that are no longer private and now which we openly admit are no longer private and which come down to, oh, well, if we screw up, the feds will just cover us and, and make us whole in the end. And that's yeah. essentially what what, what what we've got right now. It, it's interesting that the, 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 the rhetoric side of it I, I think is is interesting because the fumbling, I think, of the narrative from the decision makers, there, there's no greater sign of how much they've been caught off guard than the really sloppy messaging we've gotten from both Powell and Yellen. And so if there is perhaps a silver lining in this is that the 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 decision makers who we know their underlying agenda, um, you know, at least for most of them, um, is the further consolidation is an appreciation for the way that that the financial system is a tool of the regime and their desire is the consolidation to any extent that that, that can further uh, control that power. Um, 
if they if they if they can't sell it effectively, I, I know uh, last week, Peter, you highlighted um, a very interesting exchange uh, between one of the Republican senators and Janet Yellen, where, 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 where Yellen was admittedly where, where was admitting that um, you know an, an increased fee regime on these regional banks. Um, I, I think it was an Oklahoma senator is going to be passed on to Oklahoma customers. Their deposits will not, you know, do, do not get that quasi-government protection unless they, unless DC decides that they are important enough to do so. And yet, still better, the fees that they are paying are going to be used to bail out foreign corporate uh, companies that might have their deposits parked at a Silicon Valley bank or a Signature Bank or one of these regional banks parked in a politically important city or, or region of the country. And so the fact that they, that she didn't have a better cover <laughs> for, for, for something that, that, that is, you know, to the extent that, 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 you know, again, we don't want to overestimate the abilities of uh, you know, Republicans or conservatives or, or whatever you want to, to, to label that, that faction to effectively use this as, as propaganda for their end goals. But, but the fact that they don't have a better response to navigating this rhetorically, I, I, I think is, is perhaps a silver lining, at least in the short term. Yeah, I think sort of the dynamics of the battle that we all wage uh, is that on the one hand, the government side, the big government side, they have all the power. Why? Because they take it from us and then they deploy it for their own ends. So you might look at that and you might say, why on earth is anything free at this point? My God, they can, they can literally take trillions of dollars from taxpayers who may not agree with these things and then they can channel that towards their activists. But of course, at the same time, you have the other dynamic, which is that these people don't know what they're doing. Socialism doesn't work. It always fails. If they go faster, it fails faster. So there's, you know, there's, there's sort of this automatic backlash built into socialism. Um, I call it the Zeno's paradox of socialism, that the closer you get to it, you know, the, the sort of the harder it is to actually get to the ideal. Why? Because socialism, it has such bad outcomes that you start getting this backlash. And of course, that's where the media comes in, is that the media's job is to sugarcoat all this crap, to, you know, claim, oh, no, no, it was the, you know, it was it was uh, what Trump said uh, on the golf course eight years ago, to um, it's the, you know, tech bros buying a yacht, to try to hyper-isolate one specific, you know, sort of random piece of noise and to give that the blame whenever things go wrong, because the alternative is that people sort of stand back and say, wow, you guys really don't know what you're doing, do you? And, you know, Powell last year, he, he famously said, uh, he was asked about his failures to predict inflation correctly, right? He kept saying, nah, it's transitory, no worries, which, by the way, caused a lot of problems for the banks, because some of those bankers actually believed Powell. Um, and, you know, he was asked about that, sort of explained himself, and he said, well, we've learned over the past year how little we understand inflation, at which point you might ask, why are you in business, right? You are, you know, you are a race car with the lights turned off at night, racing down a, you know, cliff strewn road. Stop! <laughs> Get out of the car and step away from the car. Put the cars on the ground. Uh, you know, in Yellen's exchange with uh, Senator Lankford of, of Oklahoma the other day, I mean, she was just completely caught flat-footed. These people have no idea what they're doing. Yellen, a couple days later, came out and said, no, no, guess what? The science changed. Uh, now we are going to go ahead and bail out everybody. They, they, they don't know what they're doing. And I think on our side, it's very important to highlight this 
Sure, they have the power. They use our money against us. But they have no competence. They have seriously no idea which side is up. Well, the, the parallels of it being the 20th anniversary of the Iraq War, and yet many of the, the cheerleaders of that, including a, a, a particularly loved exchange, John, uh, John Cornyn, of, the senator from Texas, was using the, the, the Neville Chamberlain cliche um, against uh, uh, you know, someone questioning America's judgment in, in, in Ukraine. Um, you know, you know, he was someone who said the Iraq War was uh, a war that not of our choosing. Uh, but it is interesting how, again, you know, the, 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 it doesn't matter how, how often you are wrong. Um, it doesn't matter how, how much you're even to, willing to admit that you didn't understand the very phenomenon that you're in charge of. Uh, it, it usually does not work poorly for your career prospects or particularly your speaking fees um, there on after. Yeah, it's really uh, I, how, how much longer can they keep this charade going of that these experts that they know what's going to happen in the future and that there are these uh, very, very conscientious uh, academic types who only follow the data. I mean, is there a phrase that describes Janet Yellen other than party hack? I mean, what who, I know she had this reputation as this deep, deep thinker when she was at the Fed. But then she joined the administration and all she does is just repeat talking points for the Biden people. I, I, the idea that she has any sort of uh, serious wisdom uh, is just obvious nonsense. And so that's who the sort of person we're dealing with. And then, of course, we uh, we got Powell. And then we got the other people at the Fed are like, oh, well, there won't be any rate increases through 2023 because it's just not going to be necessary. And then and then they completely flip. And then suddenly they're sounding all hawkish. So there's absolutely no correlation between what the Fed says is going to happen in the economy and what actually happens in the economy. If anything, it's, it's practically it's uh, it's like the Jim Cramer effect. You should just assume the opposite of whatever this person predicts. And so that's what we're dealing with with the Fed. I don't know how much longer they'll be able to keep up the, the charade that, yep, you should listen to these technocrats because they know more than us. Um, and I think maybe that's part of the reason that's the only other thing we have in our pocket as well in our corners, the fact that these people are fundamentally afraid, right? It's that's the only thing that <laughs> that keeps them in line is they know they're horribly outnumbered. They know that regimes do fall. And they also let's not think that the reason they oppose inflation is because, well, I want to help the common man or inflation's bad. And my uh, finance textbooks told me inflation's bad. No, no, they just understand that societies, that regimes rarely survive a highly inflationary environment for very long. So they know that that's a major political problem is inflation. They got to do something about it, and that's restraining them. But I don't know how much of a restraint it's going to be, simply because these are not people who are consistent and who are thinking things through into well into the future. So I don't know what they're going to do. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I call that the pitchfork standard that, you know, when people ask, like, how does the Fed set monetary policy? It doesn't have a gold standard. Well, use the pitchfork standard. They ask themselves every morning, what is most likely to get people to come and break the windows at the Fed headquarters? And they try to avoid that, uh, which also raises the question, because one of the points of discussion currently, so Heritage has actually been uh, talking in public about capping the Fed balance sheet in order to reduce uh, the amount of inflation that the Fed can create. And, you know, of course, the standard pushback on that is, oh, no, 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 inflation will get out of control. And my response to that is, no, the, the Fed already operates on a pitchfork standard. They always will, because this is the nature of it. If you're a bureaucrat and you want to be left alone, then you have one rule in life, which is don't get in the newspaper for anything uncomfortable. 
right? So they will do that whether or not they're a government outfit. Uh, it may accelerate the movement that I think all of us look forward to towards a commodity standard. Uh, so I do welcome that. But fundamentally, and, you know, another point you made is about the sort of narrative. And I think that people like us, the main role uh, that we have is to frame that narrative uh, to delineate the Overton window of, you know, sort of ideas that people are even willing to consider. And I think that's why over the past couple of years, really the front lines have been on free speech very specifically. That did not come out of nowhere, right? They had a couple of events in rapid succession, Brexit passed, and then Donald Trump won. I think the <laughs> sort of poobahs on the left sat around in a room and said, we are losing it. We are not winning. The left has assumed for 100 years now that, you know, they were inevitable. Uh, and they looked at those two events and they said, whoa, this is slipping away from us really fast. And I think that's why they had to go in on free speech. And God bless Elon Musk for standing up to them. Uh, you know, if things don't work out there, there are other solutions. There are decentralized tools and so on. I hope we don't have to rely on those. But the moral of the story at the moment is that we have a lot more free speech than we've had in a long time. Uh, and, you know, now we're, we, this is sort of the first, I think, nationwide crisis. But of course, COVID was the first in the social media era. Uh, and, you know, there we were silenced. That was, of course, intentional. They had to do that because if they didn't silence us, then you know, what you're talking about, sort of the general public understanding that the emperor has no clothes, I think that would be absolutely common knowledge. So at this point, I think we have enough speech that we have a chance of making that common knowledge. And of course, something else they're trying to, to censor right now is I, I think we've seen a very clear um, regime position that is explicitly hostile to cryptocurrency, and particularly um, Bitcoin um, with some of, we, we spoke last week a little bit about Operation Choke Point, about some of the challenges that Caitlin Long um, is facing. Um, Peter, I, I, two part question on this. Um, going back to central bank digital currencies, do you think that that is a battle that normie Republicans are willing to embrace to a certain extent? I had an interaction on Twitter earlier this week on this issue and, and someone kind of gave the, the typical and understandable cynical response saying, well, I don't believe that, you know, Republicans are, are capable of understanding anything on this issue. Um, and my response was that while they were not successful in the Senate um, for a, a few different reasons, there was a policy push from House Republicans. They, they passed um, a, as a body audit the Fed, um, which is, uh, and, uh, as an oversight issue and a desire for a rules-based monetary policy that was kind of open-ended. And my perception has always been that those were very easy to understand concepts that do not necessarily require a theoretical challenge to the PhD economists out there, that it, it kind of relies upon the very populist notions of big spooky bank might challenge the power that we have as a legislative body um, and that they need to kind of be given a little bit of guidance and that I kind of see the, C, the, the central bank digital currency issue as something that's similarly simple enough that even a congressman can understand it um, as a policy aim. I know that we saw earlier this week, Ron DeSantis actually came down a couple of miles from where I'm at in Panama City 
um, and announced that Florida is trying to take a state-led approach. I think he's working on a coalition of 20 Republican states to ban central uh, bank digital currency um, within their jurisdictions. Um, so do you think that there is momentum for Republicans to embrace that as the issue that it is? And simultaneously, do you see any support building within conservative circles on recognizing the regime steps to undermine and to to aggressively attack cryptocurrency as a alternative to what the Fed is doing? And could you see institutions like Heritage without, without going beyond your, you know, <laughs> taking a broader endorsement as speaking for an entire institution? But, but do, do you see interest in a, a more traditional conservative circles and recognizing that the cryptocurrency industry or Bitcoin in particular is a challenge to the centralized power in much the same way that standing up for free speech was in terms of kind of even evening out the political playing field out there. Yeah, so I think sort of taking those in turn, uh, there's a general sense, I think, in Congress that crypto in general is obscure and that regular raiders, voters uh, can't comprehend it. Uh, or that regular voters, you know, they just sort of see crypto as like a yucky thing. You know, it's got a bunch of hackers and, and use it to buy drugs. Um, however, I think based on the communication that congressmen are getting from constituents, which, by the way, our listeners here, and that's one of the biggest things you can do is actually reach out uh, to your local con uh, Congress member, to your local senator. Um, they do actually transmit that up. It's very important because the vast majority of topics people don't care about. Um, so you can have kind of a disproportionate uh, influence. Now, on CBDCs, I think that these are different than those obscure crypto bills. I think that people care a lot about this. Uh, congressional offices are getting constituent concerns. These are not from sophisticated you know, these are from absolutely regular people. Those are the kind of people who hold the most weight uh, with uh, Republican uh, members of Senate. And the concern there, you know, consider for a moment. So if you propose to regular Americans that you were going to ban the penny, OK, they I mean, you would have those broken windows at, <laughs> you know, people, people don't like that. It would probably pull three percent. OK, nobody. People love their penny. People love their dollar. People love the idea that they have the ability to transact in cash. I think it is very easy to explain the CBD issue to people. Uh, we have seen over the past year a social credit system in effect in this country, right, where you are depersoned if you question uh, vaccines or, you know, whatever the regime has decided about this week, whether the protests were mostly peaceful. You were deplatformed for all of this. So the idea of a social credit system that is enforced by the government is not science fiction to Americans anymore. It might have been 10 years ago. It's not. I think this is an extremely approachable topic. People feel very, very passionately about it. Uh, what DeSantis, his talk yesterday on CBDCs was excellent. Uh, Christy Nome up in South Dakota has also uh, vetoed a similar bill that would try to uh, smooth the way for CBDCs. I know in Montana, they're trying to pump this thing. Uh, really, you know, they're, they're, across all the states, there are organizations that are trying to introduce uh, CBDCs. And, you know, for the human rights issues, for the economic issues, I mean, just, you, you know, we as economists sort of look at uh, how much rope the Federal Reserve has to play with the economy. And something like a CBDC would be absolutely catastrophic for the boom-bust cycle. They can essentially tell you, you've got to spend your money right now 
we have an election upcoming, so you better spend that money right now, or it'll lose 5% a week. They, they, they can uh, add a push button. Uh, and I think CBDCs are particularly dangerous because it's very, very easy to see how you introduce it. You wait for something to break. The regime will break something. Uh, and as soon as something breaks, you come in with a package deal, CBDC plus universal basic income. So you do stimmy checks at a push of a button. This will be massively attractive to people. People will beg for it. So it is very, very important to put in place ahead of time laws to prevent that kind of exploitation of a crisis. Uh, on your second question, sort of how the regime treats crypto. So, of course, broadly speaking, governments don't like crypto because it's competition. And, you know, you've got, I think, two categories of crypto politically. So you've got uh, I'm not sure if I can curse here, so I'll just say altcoins. You've got crypto other than Bitcoin. Uh, those, you know, honestly, the community is not very dedicated there. Uh, the, you know, I like to compare them to day traders. Um, they want to make money on, you know, whatever, Ethereum. Uh, but they're not fundamentally committed to trying to change the world in a way that Bitcoiners are, right? Bitcoiners are a completely different breed. I think, I think all of us are Bitcoiners here. Um, I'm certainly Bitcoin only uh, when it comes to money. And, you know, there are millions of Bitcoiners who are extremely dedicated and extremely passionate. Every newspaper editor and magazine editor in America fears criticizing Bitcoin because they know they will get thousands of people coming at them uh, as it should be. Uh, and so, you know, in terms of sort of crypto in general, altcoins, there's organizations that support them as sort of general innovation. You could argue that maybe someday there will be some diamond in the rough that, you know, could operate like uh, BitTorrent or, you know, that could be sort of a tool for decentralization. I don't begrudge that they exist. Um, of course, one should not invest in them because you will lose your money, most likely. Um, but in terms of Bitcoin specifically, I think, oh, right, so those altcoins, they may continue to exist. I suspect they'll get regulated. They have to, you know, obey whatever rules protect incumbents, and most will probably get killed, at least killed um, for American customers in that process. People overseas may use them. Uh, I think Bitcoin, of course, the dynamic is a lot more interesting. And there, uh, you know, of course, Bitcoin cannot be banned. Um, even if you coordinated every country in the world, it's not going to happen because a lot of those countries actually dislike America. Um, you know, as long as there's two humans in the world, Bitcoin will survive. So, you know, to me, uh, Bitcoin is a bit like uh, the Queen of England. We'll forget about this new one. So we'll just talk about Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth, in a sense, always stood as the backup plan, right? So if Parliament screwed it up, if the government of the UK screwed it up, if things really hit the fan, there was always the Queen to fall back on. And in that sense, I think Bitcoin is the Queen. Okay, it is it is a form of gold that is in many ways superior to gold. Currently, it fluctuates too much, so don't put your pension in Bitcoin. Um, but you know, sort of looking over a years long or decades long period, uh, it's the backup plan. And there, it cannot be killed. Uh, it is entirely likely that the U.S. government or other major governments will try to ban it. But of course, many governments have banned it, such as China. And you know, every time it tends to. Uh, go up in price. And probably the reason is that Bitcoin's price today already incorporates the assumption that it's going to be banned. And so every time it gets banned and the world doesn't end, people say, oh, wait, maybe a ban is not that big a deal. I don't want to... Uh... I want to abandon my reputation for always trying to end every every interview like on a down note. So uh, the 
Okay. Okay. The, so, so, so here's. Uh, oh, do you have a good down note you can end it with? The <laughs> no, I got an up. Uh, do you want an up note or a down note? Well, you've just been giving us up notes. I think yeah, it's good Ryan news. Doesn't what you've been to, saying about how to this, this optimism I'm, I'm, that, that uh, you're, you're selling. I'm has. optimistic, man. The Republic has been through much worse than this. <laughs> um, you know, Rothbard's conceived in liberty goes through some of the garbage they pulled before. You know, back in the 1600s. You know, you had ongoing wars. You had a law in New York that banned the sale of anything outside of a government shop on pain of execution. Okay, we have seen like California can't even touch that yet. It's going to be years before they execute people for <laughs> shopping in a, in a quickie mart. Uh, so, no, I mean, we've been through much worse than this. Americans are so badass. I have so much confidence in us. They're going to keep screwing up, which is going to turn more people against them. And then even if they play with the elections, it all that playing with the elections does is that it means that the activists take over the cheater. And the cheater gets crazier and crazier and crazier because they don't have to pay attention to our voters, but they don't have to pay attention to their own voters. They go absolutely insane. And at some point, people look around and say, my God, you people are insane after all. And it crashes. It is impossible. If you start cheating, it, it actually accelerates the process. We've seen this hundreds of times. You see this in dictatorships in Africa where they shoot people. I am extremely optimistic we are going to win because freedom always wins. Yeah, I think uh, I've been amazed at just what people are willing to say out loud, like among the bad guys now. Like, it's like they're not even trying to hide it anymore. And is it is it just because they've been backed into a corner? Is it because they think they're winning so much that they're just willing to say all this stuff out loud? I'm not, I don't know. Uh, but I do agree with you. I think the fact that they say this stuff out loud, um, I, it's probably a result of their weakness, really. Um, because yeah, we can point to all these bad things that happen, but just look at, look at the mid 20th century. I mean, what a disaster that was, right? FDR abolishes private ownership of gold and everybody's like, oh yeah, what a good idea. You know, the great Franklin says so. So, you know, I got, I got nothing bad to say about that. He ended the great depression. And then of course, world war II made everybody think that war is amazing and we're only now starting to figure out that that was all a uh, uh, that that was probably maybe one of the only wars you could possibly justify, like in the last 200 years. And even then, there's debate now. But uh, and you, you're dealing with people over 50 and they're still very much wedded to this old idea of every new war is the good war and all of that. And that seems to be falling. Though look at how nobody defends the Iraq war anymore. So we were we were right about the Iraq war. We're, we're, we're already right about Ukraine. I did an article on that. Like, that's declining in popularity. Most Americans are, are ready to move on, especially once the economy tanks. Everyone's going to be ready to move on from Ukraine. Uh, let's see, what else? Uh, we're, we're, proving, we're, we're getting more proven right every day about um, uh, COVID, right, and the safety of vaccines and all of that stuff. You got, like, German uh, health minister saying, oh, yeah, I was wrong. It turns out it actually causes serious health problems in one in 10,000 people. Um, and even that's probably a low ball figure. So I, I think maybe now they're just, maybe it's like now we, we have to like assert our power now or we won't be able to keep it at all. So now they're just like straight out saying, well, you know, we're going to pick the winners and losers. If we like your bank, we'll, we'll, we'll bail it out. If we don't, we won't. What are you going to do about it? And 
you know, if if you say things that we don't like, we'll just silence you. What are you going to do about it? So, I mean, that's just like asking for opposition. So and would you just compare that to the American thinking in the mid 20th century where they just t trusted whatever was told to them on television? That's really quite different from what we're dealing with now. Yeah, I was going to compare it to, you know, the early French Revolution where, you know, the king kind of gave up doing good policies and he just paid the soldiers more. So, you know, they're not even trying to compete on ideas. It's just bribing friends and hoping they can hold it together. And we may still be a little bit off from executions for anyone in California voicing uh, pro-market sentiments, but forced gender reconstruction surgery might be a little bit earlier in the car. So we, we will see how that one plays out. Um, but we, we are kind of near the end of our hour here. So, Peter, it's always great to talk to you. Uh, we are, in, in the course, kind of showing our viewers a little bit how the sausage is made. We were recording this before um, Jay Powell's hike announcement, um, which is going to be about an hour after. We record this, unfortunately. Um, we had to make that work for, for schedules for all, all involved there. Um, any, any, any last comments on, on that? It, it seems like the market is expecting a 25% increase, which is notable only because just days before Silicon Valley Bank, um, you know, the projections were 50 percentage point increases in the near, you know, for the foreseeable future. Um, even though that is a hike, it is, it is, it is lower than the projections there in any sort of short term sort of, of um, guesses or, 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 or you know, Fed forecasting um, from either of you. I, I think the, uh, the question going forward is going to be, and it's the phrase that Peter used, right? We need to keep raising rates until we break something. So the question, though, is, oh, is it broken right. now? That, I think that's the question you have to ask is, oh, are these bank failures? Does that mean we broke it? Or is that just like a minor crack? So I think the question is, oh, is it time to lower rates now to now panic lower rates uh, because it's broken now? Now... Right, that doesn't always happen. You could have like the repo crisis from 2019. It didn't seem they were convinced that that was quite enough yet that things were broken. Although they immediately started QE again when uh, the when the repo crisis happened and you started uh, having these private sector spikes and in interest rates and stuff. Suddenly, the Fed is like, "Oh, I guess we need to buy more bonds and and all of that." So I guess that was. So I'm. I don't know. I don't know how to interpret that because COVID came so quickly on the heels of that. Uh, but, I, but I guess it'll just depend on what, how you define breaking something in the economy as to what will determine whether, oh, it's time to start a massive new round of QE. It's, it's totally subjective, right? But uh, it's just always hard to guess what, what the thinking is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's like Plato's cave, you know, reality doesn't matter so much as, as how you see it. And in this case, the question is, how does Fed see reality? So what do they fear from the pitchfork mob? And, you know, on rates and on liquidity, um, they have to make a choice between either sacrificing inflation, the dollar, our standard of living, or sacrificing the banks. In general, I would bet on them saving the banks because they're really good friends with them. Uh, and then the question would just be, does inflation gets bad, um, get bad enough that, you know, their, their fear sort of flips over to the pitchfork again? Uh, my best guess is they'll raise rates knowing it'll increase the pain for the banks, but they just figure they'll bail them out. You know, if they do it like last time in 2008, then they can hand over trillions of dollars and the banks will just salt it away. 
book it as savings, and so it won't show up in immediate inflation, and then they can get away with it, and it'll just sort of leak out very gradually, and they can say, well, no, that was Putin's price hike, whatever the excuse is at that time. So that's my best guess, and, and it's also consistent with the market probabilities, so I'm not going on a limb too much. Uh, I can't take credit if I'm correct. That's pretty much what the market thinks at this point. I should note, though, that today, so uh, the hype still hasn't come out. Bitcoin's up 2.5%, gold's up a half percent. That is generally saying that, uh, you know, they expect a relatively dovish mm-hmm. announcement. Uh, he may still hike, but he's probably going to talk about um, ending these hikes. Uh, or alternatively, it could be saying that uh, no matter what he does, we're going to have higher inflation going forward, which seems pretty uh, reasonable guess. Yeah. Well, Peter, this has been a lot of fun. I always enjoy talking with you. I'm sure we'll be having you on in the future. Again, please check out his work, um, including uh, we had a recent article up. Uh, it turns out that hundreds of banks are at risk. Again, we have to go back out, out on a sour note um, per tradition of this podcast. Um, and for our audience out there, particularly for students in mind, um, we just had our Austrian Economics Research Conference. It was a great event. Um, we had a, a student essay contest on America's Great Depression celebrating its 60th anniversary. I will let you guys know that on September 23rd, we have our Libertarian Scholars Conference in the great city of Nashville, Tennessee, and we have a 50th anniversary uh, essay contest for students celebrating Rothbard's For a New Liberty. Um, So if you are a student interested in participating, there are cash prizes and other great perks that come with being a Mises Institute essay contest winner. Um, please check out that at our events page, and we will have a link in our show notes for this. For Ryan McMakin and Peter St. Ange, this is Stowe Bishop. Thank you for listening to Radio Rothbard, and we will see you next time. Hey.